Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Senior Editor at Food & Wine. When it comes to calling out cruddy behavior, Chef Sam Four has never been afraid to speak her mind. Growing up as a first-generation Sri Lankan American in North Carolina, she had a supportive community and a mom who always warned her about how her mouth would get her in trouble, not that she listened. But outside of it, she began to question why the rules and standards were different for her than for her white peers. For sense of justice and fearlessness has only strengthened over the years, and she joined Communal Table for a lively and frank discussion about growing up brown in the South, why it is important to question your preconceived notions, accidentally becoming a chef, and standing up for vulnerable people. This is the first part of a two-part conversation. Sam, friend of the brand, <laughs> food and wine cover girl, oh and, and a food and wine cooks star. Tell me about where you are right now. Uh, like physically? Or... Yes. You know what? Let us take this to all these different levels. Uh, physically, where are you right now? Metaphysically, we can go all over the place. Oh my God. Um, I'm currently in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I've been traveling a little bit. I got my second shot in the middle of February. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is very strange to be back traveling again, but I didn't realize how much I missed running through an airport to get my connecting gate. So, <laughs> which is usually like my nightmare thing, but like right now I would pay to do that. I've actually figured out all my flights. So I have, cause I usually connect through Atlanta. There's Atlanta. No yep. Flights. Okay. Atlanta, like how long is that run? I've done that run so many times from gate to gate and several times have not made it. Well, my gates have been really close lately, which has been great because I've been able to stop at spots like One Flew South for a cocktail. And it's oh. just like, I feel like I'm traveling in 2019 again. 2019. We're, no, we're, t- we're in 2021 yeah, now. Extending 2020 just for this podcast. Or so. maybe we can just pretend 2020 didn't happen. <laughs> and uh, You know, after you start flying around for a while, after you've been home and your brain's been goo for a while, it is very strange. Like you start to forget just how much time you spent at home. Yeah, it's, and usually, where is home? I, I live in Lexington, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. My home state? <laughs> yep, your home state, which is oddly surprising. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of great people um, from Kentucky, but we all have to kind of suffer through the the jokes, delightful moments of Kentucky because... Yeah, it's... Uh... What has vaccine rollout been like there? You know, been... have been okay. So this is the thing. Yeah, I moved from Boston in 2012. I lived in Boston for 11 years. I loved it. I was working with restaurants there, and everyone's like, "Why would you move to Kentucky?" You know, I was only going to be there for a year, and then I decided I really liked it. And then everyone's just like, "Oh man, you were so smart to move to Kentucky because Andy Bashir, bless him, has been." absolutely wonderful about COVID-19 protocols rollout and all that even though you know everyone's like oh they're taking this they're taking that like if if we didn't have Andy I think we would have had a significantly worse time in Kentucky I mean he he really truly uh cares uh, 
it, so far as I can, I, you know, I keep close tabs on the state because I still have a lot of, you know, friends and loved ones who live there. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of whom are uh, chefs and teachers, like so many, so many people I went to high school with or grew up with are teachers, principals, uh, and, and all of that. And uh, the previous administration, maybe not so great on these things before. <laughs> So. <laughs> <laughs> but so what has been the protocol and like how have restaurants uh been you know handling this taking care of because you know i know that you work really closely with an organization that is taking care of folks it's been i mean at first it was extremely difficult to even swallow because yeah you're looking around and you're basically just seeing decimation and yeah. you're seeing people who have work their entire lives in places now in lines for food. And that is the most jarring part for me is that everything was gone in an instant. Mm -hmm. But as much as we've tried to, you know, increase capacity and deal with the spikes, I'm really pleased with how quickly the majority of the restaurant community has been able to get vaccinated in our area. Like the other night, um, one of our co-workers at the Lee Initiative was saying that at her bar, over 90% of the people had already had their first shot. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's healthcare workers and service industry workers, but service industry workers are 1C. They've been eligible for a while. And most of the, you know, close restaurant folks I know have already gotten one or both. I'm so grateful to hear that because I... insane. And, and, and it's such, it's been really screwing with my mind also because, you know, I, I, that's the state that I, you know, come from and have loved ones there. And I also see like, you know, a woman I went to uh, high school with, <laughs> I was <laughs> posting a picture of, uh, you know, a bunch of the, you know, women with whom I went to high school, all just like out drinking unmasked for St. Patrick's Day and they'd had a class reunion that I obviously did not go to because of COVID and I had and and from the outside I had to be like hey are y'all like taking any kind of precautions I mean this was in the absolute thick of it and the reaction I got back was like I had 15 heads and I was like "Mm." You know, they're, they're like, oh, well, maybe we'll have some hand sanitizer on the table or something like that. <laughs> the hand I stayed... sanitizer on the table. I don't mind it, actually. So. No, it was great. But it was sort of like, you know, I saw the pictures from that. Not a mask in sight. And I was kind of like, I love you guys. And you're being dumbasses right <laughs> exactly. now. And like, you know, what restaurant workers are you putting at risk right now? I know restaurants are hurting and stuff, but uh, I doubt yes. y'all are vaccinated. <laughs> My first time in a restaurant where I actually like sat down and you know, hung out for a while, I kept on being extremely uncomfortable because I was, I don't know, I was expecting someone to cough and then like to take off for the door. Like, of course, in my head, like nothing, nothing is going to be sensible. And so it just felt so strange, but it was, we were safe. We were roughly 10 feet from any other table and we were all potted up anyways. You know, my neighbors run uh, the bagel shop down the road and they fresh milk flour. So we, have been potting up together and making snacks throughout the entire year. Pot and, and snacks. So, <laughs> pot and snacks, man. That's that is how you survive a pandemic. <laughs> and dogs. And, and a lot dogs. of dogs. Dogs, cats, animals. I mean, I have a menagerie at this point. So <laughs> I, you haven't sent me you haven't texted me any pictures of them for a while and I you know, know. kinda of hurt, frankly. <laughs> oh, I'll fix that because they're Thank you. ridiculous. They're yeah. absolutely ridiculous. 
so that but, you know you have hound dogs they're all personality <laughs> yeah but you're you know being back at a restaurant so i haven't you know eaten indoors yet you know it's been ratcheting up in new york but you know i have to say i got my first dose uh of pfizer <laughs> yesterday thank you i'm like childhood asthma actually coming in handy and you know my husband <laughs> had asked me it is my everything is <laughs> actually everything is hurting that could be the physical therapy and the fact that I walked home over the Manhattan Bridge but uh, oh, I just yeah, had this yeah I hadn't actually you know I, I hadn't been outside of a car in Manhattan for a year you know in the food and wine offices we were in the middle of packing up uh, our you know our desks to move to a different floor and they said like hey we're actually closing down and uh, we had moved so I you know I'd driven through but I hadn't been outside of it so you know I got that first shot and I thought oh my God, I, this needs to be celebrated. My husband had asked me, what will make you feel normal? What'll make you feel like things are back to, you know, back to, okay. And I went to Chinatown and got some fishball noodle soup. Oh. And I told him fishball noodle soup is what was going to make me you know, feel okay. And, you know, they, you couldn't really sit down in there, but no. I got it. And so I got it and I, you know, I took it home after going to a couple Chinatown plant shops and uh, looking for a, a decent sized kumquat tree. So wide right now because I just, <sighs> this makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> Doesn't it though? It's like those celebrational moments. It was the first hope I'd allowed myself to have for a while, but you know, and I've been getting, you know, takeout and delivery from places, but it wasn't, this made it feel real. Like there is, I know I still have I to get my second say. shop. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and before, so there are a couple things that you need to do before your second shot yeah number one make sure you get a lot of rest number two yeah. eat a lot of snacks number three take tissues i started bawling like a child <laughs> I... I fully expect that to happen uh in the recovery area yesterday uh they there was a string quartet playing <gasps> don't stop believing <laughs> And sweet child of mine and crazy in love. (laughs) And it was a whole big, wide, beautiful range of New Yorkers getting their shot. And it was so emotional. And I was thinking the thing that killed my mom maybe wasn't going to kill me, you know, and that was, uh, that was, that was pretty huge to me. (laughs) We've lost friends and we've lost family and I've like nearly lost my close family. And it's just like. (sighs) It's the, I think the mental effects of this are going to last for a while, but just knowing that it's not going to take me out is a very strange sense of relief. It is. And I I don't think it's going to really sink in for me until that, that second uh, dose, but I'm looking forward to it. And I'm mapping in the world where all the places (laughs) I'm going to go and eat. And back to Kentucky. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I, well, I was actually thinking, um, at the Lee initiative, you've kind of made a great map for where people should go and support. Let's talk exactly. about what you're, let us, okay. When I hit a couple of things, I want to talk about what you are doing with the Lee initiative. And I also want to talk about your amazing role in restaurants because you've done it in <laughs> a way thereof. What, but <laughs> you've done it in a way that, I have not seen anybody else uh, do. And I really think that you have provided a really great blueprint because, you know, even without a brick and mortar place, you landed the cover of food and wine. And... I have not quite figured out how that happened. Because you're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say, let's explain to folks uh, what Tuk Tuk is. So it's a pop-up dining concept that I started behind a bar on the north side of Lexington that was a bit of a food desert. 
And I originally was having people over for brunch and then it started to expand beyond my guest lists to the point that like, there's a point in your life where you see someone that you don't know that's making themselves in your home, like oh. at home in your home. Yeah. And it just makes your skin crawl. And so I had that moment and I went to the bar that night and I was just like, guys, I gotta get these people out of my house. I don't know who they are. <laughs> like, my friends are great and these people are really nice. They're bringing nice bottles of champagne. Apparently they heard the rumor that I like champagne and I'm easily mm. mollified by it. <laughs> but like this can't keep going. Like I need to have my safe space. And so they're like, yeah, we can't get a food truck to the bar. And that just never has made sense to me because a drunk people are a captive audience for food. Oh God. Yes. They need to eat. It's like, it's been hand in hand for centuries. Like drunk people need snacks. Snacks get sold to drunk people. Drunk people spend a lot on snacks. It's no brainer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're you're saying you're preaching. I, I'm looking for the lie here. There is none. Show <laughs> me the lie. And so I decided to see how much of an investment it would take. And you know, and back in like 2009 and before, I was just like, well, maybe I'll open up a little snack shop in Boston. And it was like it'd be a quarter of a million dollar investment. I'm like, yeah, I don't have that much money. Like, because between liquor licenses and real mm. estate and rent and insurance and everything, I was just like, yeah, no, you're not going to do that. You're, you're going to table this. You're just going to keep on cooking people at home. It's fine. And so then I did the research when I was at the bar that night lamenting that my house had been overrun by randos. And it basically came out to like $572 to start my business. What? Really? <laughs> I bought a tent. I bought food. I bought warmers. I bought dryers. I bought a couple tables. And I got all the licensing and the training. And within about four weeks, I was ready to roll. And you came armed with some really killer cuisine. Let's talk about what that is. Sri Lankan cuisine is like the underappreciated child, I think. We've got yeah. so many good things about us, but they're so influenced by so many spots in the world because of the trade routes and everything. So It needs better PR and marketing, I think. <laughs> I mean, because the thing, like, you know, I, I remember the first time I went to a Sri Lankan restaurant in New York, the... <laughs> There was a sign in the window. It wasn't even touting what was available. It said, "It just said, not as hot as you think." Yep. <laughs> I was like, okay. I actually had no preconceptions, but oh, like so many preconceptions. See, I was in trouble in the tent because when the people would come to me with a preconceived notions of, of what a curry is supposed to be, of what a spice is supposed to be, about what of all this is supposed to be, I can't control my face. And so <laughs> maybe this is why you should go on with the masks like even after we don't cannot, need them. I cannot like, get rid of my mask because I yeah. I looked at this girl cuz like I just don't like curry and I'm like then why are you what? here? You've only had terrible curry then. Yeah. Like <laughs> And so she's like, "Well, I just don't like the spices." And I was like, "What spice do you not like?" Uh mm -mm. and I was just like and her friend was like, "You're giving her a really dirty look." I'm like, "You're holding up my line." <laughs> no curry for you exactly and so she's like don't you know don't come to me with preconceived notions of what my food is try my food and then figure it out well and also curry is a massive spectrum i mean if you really want to do the nuts and bolts of it a gumbo can be considered a curry so what unpack exactly what curry is then like technically if you don't mind 
So technically, it is, in my head anyways, it is a combination of aromatics and spices, both tempered and stewed just a little bit, and stewed to the point that it is, you know, tender and delightful to eat. And so Mm -hmm. curries typically have some sort of gravy to them, and they typically have some sort of spice blend to them. And that's generally about as broad as I get with it. Mm-hmm. Now, Sri Lankan curries are a bit different because we we use the cursed words curry powder um, because <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten into this fight so many times. How much hate mail have you gotten for that? <laughs> oh, my God. And so it's but the thing is, is that it's really easy to consider a curry powder because we put the leaves in the powder. And that is why Sri Lankan curry has such a distinctive difference, is that you have the earthiness and the herbaceousness of the curry leaves already infused into the whole like flavor foundation, if that makes sense. I think that makes sense. Yeah, that does. And actually, like one of the things I'm going to try to grow this year is curry leaf. Oh, wait, I'm so I'm going to be in New York pretty soon. So if my plant I'll make is, a handoff. <laughs> if my plant is propagating, I will be a little super oh my- guy. God, I mean, like over the past few weeks, as I've been getting my garden together, I've talked like (laughs) seedlings with various people and I'm just so happy. Shockingly enough, my garden is going to be mostly black vegetables this year, my goth garden. (laughs) (laughs) That's not on brand at all. Not even a little. (laughs) But I, I, you know, I love this because, you know, I grew up, my my dad was uh, obsessed with, he had somehow picked up a copy of uh, Madhur Joffrey book. And I just remember coming home one day and like the house smelled different than it ever had before. I'm like, oh, what is this amazing thing? And so like it became our thing, like sort of seeking out various curries and stuff. And it, so but I it was do this thing to torture my neighbors. Oh, do tell. Yeah. So I got like a restaurant strength range hood. Yeah. And when the contractor asked me where I wanted to pipe it out, I wanted to pipe it out to my neighbor's house. Oh my God. I want, can I be your neighbor? Cause that would be like, cause like, I just like, I don't know. It was this trend. I, I refer, I've probably even talked about on this podcast. I referred to that moment like so many times where it felt like that moment in the wizard of Oz, where you go from black and white to color. I'm like, what is food? Oh my God. Like this is so incredible. I you the opposite spectrum of that. <laughs> Oh my I god! Made so my my mom used to make this stuff called babung, and so it is a combination of fried onions, fried sprats, fried potatoes, fried cashews, all kind of jumbled together, and then you mm-hmm. throw it on top of rice, and it's perfect. So the day that she was making babung and frying the sprats and the onions, I inadvertently left my backpack in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. My backpack reeked of fried fish and onions, but I didn't think it was going to be a big deal because I was going to put it in my locker, no problem. Mm-hmm. Got, got to school in the morning, threw my bag in the locker, and then the day went by and the entire floor reeked of fish and onion. And everyone's like, what is that smell? And I'm like, gee, I don't know. And I took off. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> wait, and remind me where you grew up. So I grew up in Gastonia, North Carolina. Oh, God, I know it. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know how it's the gateway to Gastonia now. It's yep. little Chicago. It is a very, yep. very strange place. <laughs> oh, my God. I It just, yep. 
that's uh, that rings painfully true to painfully I, true. Uh, I mean you know i'm thinking of like all the folks i know who like you know grew up in north carolina or kentucky or or whatever non-white oh, folks your, your and editor and i argue about north carolina constantly <laughs> you know my i married into a north carolina carolinian family <laughs> and so i'm i'm even though i'm from kentucky i'm you know the yankee daughter-in-law and <laughs> And, you know, and I actually uh, I had Joe Kwan on the podcast uh, talking about growing up. I love that man. And but him talking about like growing up in, uh, you know, in North Carolina, like right, like by near where my husband is from, too. And but like, find you know, and finding some community and stuff, but still having those those food moments of otherness. And that's the thing is that the community for the Sri Lankan community, they were mm-hmm. there. And that's why we were there. You know, there were yeah. little pods. There's a pod in the Charlotte area. There's a pod in the Atlanta area. And it's, and yeah, know. Charlotte very much these days. Oh, yeah. And so we all kind of had each other. And that yeah. made a huge difference in basically growing up brown because at least you had that sort of sense of community and connection. It just happened to be in the middle of a very odd place. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> And well, it feels like Lexington has gone through such a transformation in the time since you know, I moved away. The last time I was in Lexington was, which was just a few couple of years ago. Like I had the most incredible Mexican food. That you went to Ramirez, didn't you? I think that's where it was. The tortillas were like yep. some of the best I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, like, this is such a you know, glorious transformation. I've met uh, Stephen Alvarez, who teaches uh, that taco cl- literacy, literacy, and uh, you know, and taught me the term Mexington. <laughs> and um, have you seen that little documentary? No, I have not. I need oh to my clearly. God, adorable. Yeah, please send me the link if you don't mind. Definitely. So it's Laura Patricia Ramirez, whose family has been there for a couple of decades. They started making tortillas for the community that was working in the for- in the farms. And then everyone just kind of caught on to how amazing it is. So that entire little area off of Alexandria Drive, you've got incredible tamales, pozole, like all sorts of soups, burritos, sopes, everything that you could imagine. And it's in the, like, I, I've never had that much variety in Mexican food in a Southern state. Yeah. I, you know, I, (laughs) well, but, but it does. (laughs) And I I think that that's the thing is like, now we just have access to it. Like it was like you said, like people in their sort of own pods and in their own Mm -hmm. communities and probably enjoying those things. It's uh, it just hadn't been opened up to outsiders. And like, you know, in a lot of ways for good reason, because, you know, we are talking at a particularly, uh, so it's been ugly for a long time. And yeah, I mean, it's been, damn ugly for a long time and and just it's just like it's every it's every group is is going through this and that we all kind of have to realize that we have to be in solidarity with each other yeah we get so concentrated on our own groups that we don't realize that the same thing is happening across everybody i wanted to offer context for this part of the conversation we are discussing the murders of eight women of asian descent in uh, Atlanta spas uh, over the past week. 
None of these women have been confirmed to have engaged in sex work, and none of these venues are confirmed to be places where sex work was occurring. Felt it was important to bring up this context because uh, statements made by the killer uh, indicate that he believed some incredibly harmful uh, stereotypes that uh, led to his actions. You know, I've, a lot of the discourse I've been, you know, seeing online was, you know, people, you know, saying especially like, oh, you love our the food and you hate the people, you dehumanize the people. There's a lot of dehumanization of the, of the community that's going on just between the rhetoric and decades. And I mean, this has been ingrained in decades and decades of history. That's the yeah. problem is that the roots go back so far that it's really hard to take care of the weed. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, and it's intersecting in all kinds of ways as, as well, uh, you know, and, you know, as a former sex worker, like, you know, my, my heart is, you know, especially sort of in that community and, you know, the sort of intersection with the hatred that is going on against, um, you know, people of Asian descent, like it, it's, you know, this was just this nexus it's of ugliness. on multiple fronts. It's just like, Work is work. Sex work is work. It's yeah. not something that should be considered, you know, lesser than it, it is. I don't understand how people have any problem with anyone making a living as long yeah. as it's, you know, not killing anybody. Yeah. So, but don't yeah. hurt people and don't hurt animals and I'm generally fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, my, my former colleague, Sarah Littrent and I, another uh, daughter of North Carolina, uh, we, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we worked together for a long time and we came up with uh, JBCM, which is just be cool, man. <laughs> and yeah, like, exactly. yeah, it, you know, I, I just keep thinking about this, like, cause we, t we talk about like sort of food as diplomacy, food as a bridge between cultures. And I do believe in that in, in some ways, but also, you know, there, there is that disconnect somehow that people have where they can, you know, rally around, uh, you know, food stuff. Hey, everybody loves, you know, sriracha or chili crisp or, or whatever like that. But then this dehumanizing and despising of the people who, actually make it and, and I think it's it's a very strange place for first generation Americans yeah because yeah we have seen our families put their heads down and and you know embrace the model minority myth by mm -hmm. not creating waves and my mother still tells me she's like yeah don't cause trouble this and that I was just like ma I'm at the point <laughs> in my life if I'm gonna cause trouble a at least about five people are gonna be behind me and b I have just my filter is gone, you know, especially after the last year and seeing everything that has happened, it's gone. Like if I don't speak up, if I don't say something, I feel like I've failed everybody. Um, could you go and look in your purse for me and see how many fucks are in there to give? <laughs> you know, I should show you my field. It is barren for there are none. <laughs> I mean, and one of the many, many reasons that, you know, I, yeah, love and admire you is that you are so outspoken and the piece you wrote from medium my god it, it really I like did not expect that to get i know <laughs> i know you didn't but i sure did i remember you were about to publish it yeah because josh whether he knows it or not the food he's a food editor isn't he he's such um, a good man what he a is, good human he is being secretly my work husband he doesn't know it <sighs> 
he's dreamy. I love him. So he's the reason, like, he was the one who freaked out about the tomato pie the first time. Mm -hmm. And I just instantly, I was just like, I love you. I don't know you, but I love you. Mm -hmm. And so I sent it to you and Josh. And then I woke up the next morning because I posted at night. And I'm like, okay, you're not going to sit online and see if this anyone reads this. And then the next morning I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, it helps. Like, you're an amazing writer. I will first put that out there. Like, but also, you know, you... It, it was, it just laid bare your soul and your, your anger and you were entirely justified in this. Can you explain what it was about? So I had done a piece with a writer um, who I trusted very dearly that, you know, very closely. Mm-hmm. And she and I had been talking throughout this whole process and it took us about six months, I think, to get this phone app piece approved. And so at the week when all of this stuff was going on with them and, you know, not paying people enough, not having equity in pay, not treating people properly, not, you know, being dismissive of ethnicity or differences, all of that stuff was going on. And the writer sends me a screenshot of an email that's just like, I'm so sorry, she deserved this, and you know, she deserved better attention than we gave her. And all I can remember is like, Through the whole process, it was very, very oriented on how I was different, how I was brown. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I'm a a brown kid who grew up in the South. I don't really have any sort of prejudices or anything towards any of the ethnic groups because we all have kind of gone through this together. But to see it in writing, to see that they had basically diminished me. And this is like, a, this had been an eight month process at this point. I yeah. had no idea when it was going to be published. I had no idea what was going to be published. And all of a sudden said writer didn't either. And said writer, I know how much care they put into it. And yes. yeah. And, and they, they had cut like maybe 1500 or more words out of it already. Mm. And then all of a sudden I have a photographer at my door and I'm throwing a dinner party for pictures And I have no idea what's going on. And I'm getting on a plane from a No Kid Hungry dinner, and I get a text. It's like, oh, this is there's a piece in Bone App about you. I had no idea. I had no idea. And then it disappeared. It was just gone. It was it was there for a day, day and a half, and then it was gone. I was like, this is weird, because they really get excited about, you know, Far Eastern ingredients and turmeric and, you know, any sort of ethnic cuisine that they can highlight because normally it's the other folks highlighting it not the folks who make it mm-hmm. and then I saw an email I was like oh you know I should have treated you better and I knew that at some point the editor and the writer had gotten into a conversation where she was basically screaming like I'm not trying to be racist but when you have to say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean that should be your first yeah. flag and so I saw this email and I got mad I just I was so mad and the only time I cry is when I'm angry yeah it's like it is just like a complete waterworks out of my face and uh, I have a manager who's based in Brooklyn who was on the phone with me and my husband was over there it was like the night before our wedding anniversary that all of this came to a head and I went ballistic and so I started to write something and basically all I wanted to do was punch everyone in the nose and so I couldn't put that draft up there because you know it's probably not good to encourage violence at these points so (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and so I thought it out, and I, I said, you know, look, this is this is who I am. This is what I do. And honest, completely, completely honestly, if all of the attention and uproar that happened around the murder of George Floyd hadn't happened, I don't think I would have had the courage to say anything. Mm-hmm. I think I would have just accepted it as the way things are. Well, because I saw in this piece, you turned it in on yourself because you were, you had spent so much time thinking, am I not interesting enough? Am I not good enough? Mm-hmm. Am I not something, you know, and you, you are, that and that, that was do, done. That is what we do. And that it was done. It's also done to you yes. by the, by this system of white supremacy. And it's just, it's exhausting because you yeah. think about it and I've been dealing with this. I'm 37. I've been dealing with this. For Baby. <laughs> I'm a baby, but I've been dealing with this for 32 years of my life. Yeah. My first memory of it is when I'm four. Like, mm-hmm. I remember all of these things. Every Everything from, you know, winning the school spelling bee to... <gasps> I forgot we were both spelling bee kids. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely spelling bee nerds. Um, but I won the school spelling bee, and then next week they made me take an English as a second language test. <sighs> Yeah, And I was like, why? Why did you pick me to do this? And they couldn't say it. And I was like, it's because I'm brown. That is the only reason why. And it was at, infuriating. At that age, were you able to say that? Did you like... Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. Yeah. No, I got into huge trouble a couple years afterwards because I had a world history teacher that was crashing on people who would... Um, bathe in the Ganges. And so she went into this whole diatribe about how it was stupid. What? And so I went, I went off. Like I just, I couldn't take it anymore. And so I got sent to the principal's office and my mother, my mother still refers to this. She called me last week and she's like, if you're doing an interview with someone, just remember what you did in the ninth grade. I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> remember how much trouble you caused because you know, we're supposed to be quiet. We're supposed to be good. We're supposed to have our heads down. I was supposed to be a doctor, you know, and mm-hmm. I just, at the various points in my life, I got ticked off and all of that went to in a handbasket. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what I didn't realize about yeah. the medium piece is how it really connected across cultures. Yeah. I had so many people emailing me be like, I had no idea that anyone else knew how this felt. I had no idea that anyone had been through what I had been through. And these are all people who are very, you know, you would never guess, ever. And yeah. it's just, it just goes to show, especially with the first gen experience and with, you know, any sort of melanin involved, how much different the experience is of growing up. And I was, I was talking about this with someone yesterday. I was just like, you know, are you, are your kiddos aware of this? Are your kiddos aware of what's going on? No, well, they know, you know, to correct something. I said, that's a lot of responsibility for a child. Yes. And that's, and that's a responsibility that children really shouldn't have to bear right now. But that's the hope for the future because we've polluted the past so badly mm-hmm. that we have to start exposing kids to these things as early as possible. But it's also very, very painful. I, and I was watching Waffles and Mochi last night, ah! which, which, oh, my God, in, 
like so incredible and so, such a gorgeous thing but there was this amazing moment because i you know i watched a couple episodes i was sort of skipping around like i know that person i know that person and oh, yeah, i'm totally geeking about that because oh my I god i can't wait to see preeti with a bunch of you know except with puppets <laughs> but i <laughs> but there, this one in particular rice episode i'm watching michael twitty talk about the enslavement of mm-hmm. people like to, to kids and talking about this like and i you know I, I i actually still owe him a text but i uh you know i i was texting samin saying like because she'd been in a previous episode saying oh my god i want to build a time machine and put this show on 50 years ago and see mm-hmm. what the world would be like now if you know these conversations had you know been on kids programming you know at you know at that point and all these beautiful faces and bodies and cultures and cuisines and and all of this stuff represented in this beautiful and joyous fashion and talking about like how family can be all different way, but like just, you know, living here in, in the year of, of 2021 and seeing like the beautiful Michael Twitty, you know, talking about, you know, tough stuff to kids was, mm-hmm. wow. That was, it just felt like right at that moment, I burst into tears. And kids are so oddly resilient and they absorb so much. And honestly, a majority of what I went through as a younger kid is because of what they were raised around. Yeah. Yeah. And it's people who do things without thinking and saying things without thinking and they don't realize just how much little kids absorb. Yeah. It's normalized. The little the jokes, the comments. I mean, I I was, you know, I had tweeted something last night right before I went to bed, but I was thinking about all the people who made stupid you know, dead hooker jokes over the years oh and ha 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 laughing and I'm like you're dehumanizing <laughs> and and kids hear this stuff and they hear that you know and jokes they mimic it. yeah they because they'll get a laugh <laughs> yeah. and they don't know any better and that's where it starts is that you know i had a friend of mine who recently went to go get his hair cut and he has you know he's an african-american man with a big beautiful afro mm-hmm. and so he was getting it and he's getting it trimmed down and he's just like you know i don't know a lot of people who know how to deal with black hair yeah. So this guy was very, very, you know, into the entire process of, of doing it, except he started to refer to it in a derogatory term. And I'm just mm-hmm. going to let you guess because it's mm-hmm. as bad as you think. Mm-hmm. And that just, it's 2021. These are mm-hmm. adults in their 30s. Mm-hmm. And they think that's okay. That's yep. not okay. Like, I, when he told me, I almost hit the ceiling. <sighs> Is this is this in Kentucky or is? Oh yeah, it's in Kentucky, but it it can be anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I experienced more abject racism when I lived in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, so it happens everywhere. Every- Nowhere is immune. <laughs> it's absolutely Nobody's everywhere. Yeah. Nope, no. Nobody's <laughs> safe, and that's the hardest realization about the events in Atlanta. Yeah, is that you realize just how vulnerable the communities are and that's what breaks me is that i can't see an end to this i can't see it normally when there's a huge problem i can see a light at the end of the tunnel but all i can see is that people are getting emboldened and making it worse and that's what makes me very afraid for the restaurant community yeah for you know the skilled trade community for the sex worker community i don't think anyone should have to be afraid to go to their job no 
Absolutely not. And but now people are taking precautions. You know, I've got, mm-hmm. I've, I've fielded a ton of phone calls yesterday with, you know, half of my Asian American friends are saying, you know, I'm thinking about getting back into concealed carry for my own protection. It's just like, mm-hmm. really? We're, we're there. We're back there again. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it sucks because you want to think that you're making progress. Yeah. And then, you know, again, it's, it's, you know, I sure don't have to tell you, like, it's, it's always there. It's just a matter of when it happens to exactly. happen in public and in this news uh, kind of way. Um, but it's also the people who don't, you know, yell when it's happening to an elderly woman in a San Francisco street, you know, it's a busy street. Why are you watching this happen? But everyone doesn't want to get involved. There is a there is an exclusionary and isolationist sort of way to look at these things. They're like, well, if I have my head down and I'm not involved, it doesn't have anything to do with me. But it has everything to do with that. Yeah, it's, you know, I was thinking last last night, like, normalize being a party pooper. Like, and this is something mm-hmm. where you were talking about, you had your, your moment in ninth grade, I, you know, I... I had one in eighth grade and it, this, and this was about a friend of mine who was being slut shamed and by our teacher, by the boys and then the teacher. And, Mm -hmm. and it just broke my heart because also I, I didn't know at the time what she was going through at home and it was the the bad things you think. And, uh, (laughs) and went, I took myself to the principal's office and took her to the principal's office and yelled. And I was thinking like, you know, I can see this, (laughs) but I was thinking like, you know, like normalize being the person who says that's not funny. Like, and, and, and it's on white people to do this. It's absolutely on white people to do this. I enjoy normalizing being a jerk when I have (laughs) There's something so therapeutic because in my heart, I know I'm right. Yes. No (laughs) argument against it nobody like i don't pick a fight i won't win what about like accountability and consequence culture that's, <laughs> that's what i'm here for we will pick this back up in a moment amazing thank you so much to our guest sam for you will be hearing the second part of the conversation in the coming week or two where we dive deep into her life as a food and wine cover girl, um, some fighting with her aunties and all kinds of just, you know, her brain now. You probably love her as well and you'll want to hear more from Sam Four. And the best way to make sure that you know this conversation is happening is to subscribe to the podcast. It It'll just show up in your feed. You don't have to do any work. There it is. It'll just pop in there. And, uh, you know, you could also put throw in some stars there. You could leave some comments. You could share it with a friend. And they also, um, you know, that just helps us rise up in the algorithms, helps more people listening, it helps us continue to do uh, this work and have these conversations that, you know, I think are really pretty important as we're going through especially uh, difficult and painful times in the culture. Um, You know, again, as we've said on the podcast, none of this is new. Some of it is escalating. And if you want to, you know, educate yourself better about anti-racist actions, how to help the uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander community, uh, we will have links in the show notes. Please go and read and and give and do all of 
the hard work that we have to do to keep one another safe. Um, these are really terrifying times and all we have are each other. And the best thing we can do is help and keep one another safe. It is uh, more important than ever. So I want to thank our incredible producer, Antara Sena, who, you know, there are some difficult parts in this conversation and she is an incredible gut check. And I appreciate her on so many, many levels. And just thank you to her for producing this podcast every week. An extra shout out to our executive editor, Karen Shimizu, for also talking through uh, some of this as well. She's so great and graceful about helping us, uh, you know, steer around the curves and, uh, you know, really use our platform for good. So thank you so much, Karen. Thank you to Sarah Crowder, as always, for the images that you put with the podcast. This exists on the website under the umbrella of Food and Wine Pro, which you heard me mention that up top. And that is the part of the site and the magazine and hopefully soon some more uh, in-person events and virtual events where we're really highlighting the stories of people like Sam who work in the industry, which is, you know, in such peril uh, right now. And we really want to, um, you know, let you know that you're being heard and that we are celebrating your stories and we are trying to get resources to folks. Um, that's where the stories happen. Uh, you can go to foodandwine.com slash fwpro. And while you are there, if you care to sign up for the Food and Wine Pro newsletter, it is uh, really just chock full of good resources, all the stories that we have been doing on the site with some words of wisdom from our excellent editor-in-chief, Hunter Lewis. And you can always find the link to the latest podcast in there as well. Go to foodandwine.com slash fwpro and you will see the link to the newsletter. It's just going to be right there for you in your inbox and uh, we do the work for you. So uh, you can just indulge in all of the stories that matter to the industry this week. So please do that. Um, you know, thank you so much for listening to this and I really hope that you all are going to take care of each other and with that I want to toss it over to Kelsey Youngman who is on our food team and also is a certified meditation instructor. Take it away Kelsey. Hello I'm Kelsey Youngman the associate food editor at Food and Wine and I'm here with this week's mantra. Listen in. This week, I encourage us all to take advantage of the little rituals we might not even know we have. The two minutes we take to brush our teeth, prepare tea or coffee, put in your contacts. Those little things we do each day, often without paying much attention. This week, try to really notice the minutiae, the sound of the cabinet opening, the scrape of the mug off the shelf, the specific sound of hot water hitting the walls of the mug, or the peel of the lid on your contacts case, the wet solution as it touches your fingertip. What's the smallest, subtlest thing you can notice without changing your routine at all, but simply by noticing it? Have a beautiful week.